0: Okay. Lament. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. Establish the earth and its endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished from my affliction. And I will never forget your precepts, for by them, you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. All perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Boundless.
1: Exceedingly broad, this one says. Boundless. Okay, we got a couple of uh, prayer requests. Mr. Magnuson is not doing well. He isn't Okay, so uh, we want to keep him in prayer. He... Uh, the last I heard was I think it was yesterday. He's if he doesn't get better, they're gonna to have to take him to the hospital. And I have not heard if a pastor can visit or not, so I don't know. But uh, you know, a week ago Hidako called and he said, Listen, I can't have anybody over at the house, but if you want just drive by and stop and wave and I'll wave out the window, I wouldn't even recommend that. If he's sick, you don't want him getting up and coming to the window, but we'll keep him in prayer. Lisa Bunker in New Jersey has got a bad infection and she sounded terrible when she called me. So uh, we'll add her to prayer. And then Oma in the Superior Word Church in Kenya is looking to buy a used van. I'm going to mention this again on Sunday uh, for the church there. It's a $9,000 van. Uh, it's used. It's a, It looks like a very nice van and if anybody can help uh Support them in that endeavor. It would be appreciated. It's uh, for the church, moving supplies and helping people out and things like that. And um, anyway, uh, so he asked me to mention that. And if you need information on how to help with that, just uh, send me an email and I'll hook you up with them. And I think that they have a commitment over there. If I understood the email properly, already a fifteen hundred dollars. So if that's the case, they're down to seventy five hundred they need. But uh, Michael has had a heart attack and no virus at this point, but we want to keep Michael in prayer. And uh, let's see here. Um, Felix and his wife are expecting a baby. He's over in um, the UK, and there continues to be some complications. We got some good news this morning, but we want to pray for them because uh, uh, it, it's really been touch and go with this, with them for a little while. And then um, Mark and Becky in Colorado have got some... Uh, residual effects from the virus. And so yeah, I got an email yesterday and they're doing better. She's got pulled a bad muscle in her back again. So uh, they need some prayer. And uh, then I've gotten several emails over the past week on this issue. I'm not going to say any more than n- no people in particular, but there are people that are caught in King James onlyism, and, uh, it, it it they all have a, a common denominator in their uh, their struggles with their family members that are in this is that or the church that they were in that was in this and their friends Is that there's a streak of meanness in them and I said that's to be expected I've said this to several people this week um, And the reason why is because if you think you have the only of something then you will naturally be uh, Not very nice to other people King James only I'm sorry uh, Jehovah's Witnesses think that they have the only path and they're Obviously a cult they deny the deity of Christ etc. But uh, Church of Christ, you must be baptized in the Church of Christ, or you're not saved. And crazy stuff like that. You, it, it leads to legalism, and legalism always leads to a sense of anger in people, and it also uh, leads to a sense of being superior over other people. So I would uh, ask that you would pray for people that are caught in that King James Onlyism because it doesn't help anybody. It's a very poor theology. In fact, it's a, a it's its own little cult, even if the people are saved and the people are in bondage and they need to be brought out of that. So I would uh, recommend that we pray about those things and we'll go ahead and do that right now. Heavenly Father, you've heard the prayer request for these people that uh, have some real afflictions. And I'd like to add in Hedico. She's getting much, much better and I'm thankful for that. But uh, she uh, still is in a lot of pain with her fall. And uh, we have obviously other people that uh, we haven't mentioned that are spread around with their own trials and troubles and afflictions and, Lord, you know every one of them. You know everything that is bothering people and that has got them down, difficulties with jobs right now, and people are just really in a a place that is not happy for many of them. And so I would ask that you would uh, remind them that you are there with them, and you've promised to never leave nor forsake your people, and uh, that that would be a a good reassurance to them as they contemplate your ways and what you have done For them in the past and will do for them right into eternity lord we love you we thank you for the chance to meet here today and there is a uh, uh, class that we're going to be conducting and we would pray that what is said is proper and right and if it's not that you would just erase it from their memories and send uh, the people that are curious about uh, uh, a particular issue to somebody that would teach it properly but you know that we would never improperly teach something on purpose so we would pray that what is said here tonight would be in line with your word and with uh, your will, according to your word. And Lord, we ask these things that you will be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we are getting started today in one Corinthians, uh, two Corinthians, eleven, verse twenty-two. And if you have somewhere you need to back up to, that's just great. Whatever is good for you.
0: Verse. Okay. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about you. 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I.
1: Okay, here we go with Paul's qualifications. We were talking about that last week and getting ready to introduce them. And uh, Paul is. Uh, uh, he's got more qualifications than, you know, a, a general with a breastful of badges or what do you call them, meritorious medals and all that kind. Of, he, he's he got every qualification that you could possibly want for a person under the law of Moses and all of the things that would naturally lead somebody to think that guy is on the highway to heaven. And yet he's going to make a point here and he's going to do it in several other epistles concerning what people look at and say ooh and ah to when in fact it is Well, we'll get there. We'll go through it. But this is his qualifications, and this is what he uh, uh, will then discuss in detail, like I said, in a couple other epistles as well. In Paul's boasting, this is Paul's boasting, which isn't boasting at all. It's just simply saying I have a reason to boast if I were to because these people are putting people that came into the congregation up on a pedestal, which they should not have been. In Paul's boasting out of his defense against his accusers, He now contrasts himself with them. What is evident is that they matched each of these things that he will now describe and they boasted of their status because of it to the Corinthians. And we see this, I said this in a sermon not too long ago, one of the doctrine sermons. We've got uh, all kinds of fallacies that people uh, hold to. You've got category mistakes where you uh, say one thing when it's actually relaying to something else. It's You've got a category and you're making a mistake mixing your categories. You've got um, red herrings. Somebody brings in a fallacy and he says, uh, you're talking about one subject and all of a sudden he brings in another subject. And the idea of a red herring is it's a fish, okay? And you're dragging that fish across the path that somebody is walking on. And what happens? The dog that's walking on that path trying to find the person goes off the way of the red herring. Okay, that's what that means. It's kind of like, you know, you're, you're being distracted by something that has nothing to do with the subject at hand. And then you have, um, <clears throat> you got to, just all kinds. There's a million different types of fallacies. If you know what the fallacy of illicit major is or the fallacy of illicit minor, when you're saying something in a sentence and you say it incorrectly, your major premise is wrong or your minor premise is wrong and therefore you're saying something that doesn't actually make any sense but those are very hard to see and then we have all kinds of uh, problems with critical thinking one of the problems that we have and paul is kind of addressing it right now is what is called the genetic fallacy okay paul is a jew, jew okay he's a hebrew he's an israelite he's this and that and <clears throat> yeah he's of the tribe of benjamin thank you that's my mom adding in some nice thoughts there. You're sitting in Burke's seat today, so you have to make sure that now you perform well. That's all there is to it. No, Burke isn't here. He's, uh, he's, he's not going to be here. Anyway, you are expected to fill in his shoes. Um, so anyway, the genetic fallacy says that, oh, that guy must be really smart because he's a Jew, or that guy must be really smart because he's from a royal family, or that guy must be, Whatever. We take people and we assign them value based on their genealogy or their genetics. And we do the same thing with education. We do think, you know, oh, he's got a master's degree in divinity or whatever. He's got a, a PhD in theology, whatever. And so we say, he must be smart. Well, the people that write commentaries on the Bible, okay, and you've got millions of them, most of them have doctorates in theology. And yet you have one person that says this, and you have this person that says this, and they are completely, completely contradictory. They're not reconcilable in any way, shape, or form, and yet they both know the original Greek perfectly because they were trained in biblical Greek. They both have doctorates in theology, and yet they come to completely different conclusions. They both cannot be right. One of them may be right, or both of them may be wrong, but they cannot both be right. And therefore, using a person's credentials as a point of uh, Holding them in high esteem is a poor thing to do. Another thing that people do, and I've said this during the sermon, is to dismiss somebody because of their credentials. Oh, he went to Harvard Theological Seminary, and that's a liberal seminary, and therefore I'm not going to listen to him. Well, that's not appropriate. The guy may be a very good Bible scholar. Okay? So to dismiss a theological ed- education is a fallacy. To look to one as a source of authority is a fallacy what you do is you look at the person and what they are saying is it in accord with the word of god or not and there are 10 million fallacies there there are so many that we we make them all the time and what a fallacy is in very short description is an error in thinking if you are not thinking correctly or if you're not thinking clearly then you will make a fallacy or a fallacious statement and when you do then you are causing damage to your own, what you're trying to, uh, to do. But people, most people don't recognize fallacies. So what I would recommend is that you get a book and you can get just a little one. It's got 400 different fallacies or go online and just type in common fallacies and read what they are and read how people make them and think about it. A lot of these sites will also give you examples. Well, Mary did this and Tom did this and therefore, and then you find out what the fallacy is. And by doing that, you will be able to help yourself think more clearly. Okay, it's not a means to an end or anything, but it is a good way to be able to evaluate somebody. Paul is right here discussing a genetic fallacy. People are looking at these people that come in. They're Jews. So what? He calls them what? False apostles. Right. They're false apostles. It doesn't matter if they're Jewish. It doesn't matter if they were Pharisees or anything. So what he is doing now is he's making an argument against that by boasting. Okay, he's not boasting because he's saying how great I am. He's boasting to show how not great the things that people think are great actually are. Okay, so there you go with that. So the we, I'll say that again. Paul now says that to, I'm sorry, I'm down here. They claimed a special right and a status because of this heritage, and therefore they were more worthy to be listened to and followed. Be advised that nothing has changed today. As you read these words, know that the same exact arguments are used by the exact same category of people to sway others to their own misguided use of Scripture. I can't tell you how many times I get an email from somebody and I'll say, well, that's actually an incorrect analysis. And they say, well, he's Jewish. Of course he's right and you're wrong. And that's their only argument is that this person is Jewish. I I get it daily. I'm not kidding. You know, you say, I'm sorry, that is incorrect. And they'll come back and they'll say, well, you know, that... This teacher says that the feasts of the Lord, uh, the last three feasts of the Lord, trumpets and uh, atonement and tabernacles are not fulfilled. And I say they are. And they say, well, he's Jewish, so he must be right because he has all the culture and heritage. Well, my answer is always the same. I gave somebody this one this week, and this was a person I know, so I'm I'm not criticizing that person in any way, shape, or form. But, um, I mean, I know through emails, but I said, if... The fall feasts of the Lord are not fulfilled, then anybody? The law is still alive. The law is still alive that Christ did not fulfill the law, and we are still in our sins because we are following the wrong messiah. And you can take the whole New Testament and just throw it away. The everything about the old covenant, everything is fulfilled. It is done. It is over. All right. People say, well, the Feast of Trumpets is a picture of the rapture. One, it's not the Feast of Trumpets. In Hebrew it's Yom Teruah Teruah does not mean trumpets Teruah means acclamation or shouting okay they may have blown trumpets on that day but they also blew them on the Day of Atonement and other days as well okay nothing to do with that so the feasts of the Lord and I like to say this from time to time so that people understand this the feasts of the Lord are fulfilled they are done they're over that doesn't mean that something isn't going to happen like the rapture or some other thing on the feasts of the Lord it may or it may not but in their fulfillment they are done That he has done everything that needs to be done, and that is it. The law is done, and so we'll go on from there. As you read these words, know that the exact same arguments are used by the exact same category of people today, which I just said to sway others to their own misguided use of Scripture. He begins with, here it is, are they Hebrews? Or today we wouldn't use the term Hebrews, we would say Jews, because um, this is something that most of you know, but there may be people that don't understand this. Hebrew is a designation of the people. Okay, that goes all the way back to Abraham. Genesis 13, the term was used for the first time. Abraham or Avram, the Hebrew. Okay, Hebrew comes from the forefather of Abraham named Eber. Okay, Eber means to cross over. Okay, the Hebrew people are those who have crossed over. Abraham was an Ur of the Chaldees. He was called out of that, over the river and into the land of Canaan. Okay, it's a picture of going over from You know, not being in the Lord to being in the Lord, crossing over. And we're going to see that coming up in some sermons very soon in the Deuteronomy sermons. The same word or a variant of the same word, abar, means to cross over. And you'll see how that pertains to coming to Christ, being renewed in the Spirit, etc. Anyway, so um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, Hebrew is a cultural designation. So today you could say they're Hebrew people, but you wouldn't do that normally. We would say they are Jews. And the reason why is because Judah became the predominant tribe within the 12 tribes of Israel. It's where Jerusalem was. It's where the uh, kings came from. Israel branched off, and eventually they were exiled and dispersed, okay? But when they reassimilated into the culture, they were all known as Jews, even the, the northern tribes. All of the tribes are just lumped under the category of Jews. Okay, so that's why there's a difference. They basically have the same intent. I'm a Jew, I'm a Hebrew, same intent. Um, and that brings me really quickly to the fact that there are no lost tribes of Israel. If you've ever heard that, that is an incorrect analysis. After the dispersion of Israel in 722 BC by Sennacherib, king of Assyria, the 12 tribes were dispersed, but the names of, I think, uh, I'm sorry, the 10 tribes, 10 tribes were dispersed and there were two left down there but after that time there are still listed i think 10 of the 12 tribes all listed in the bible after that okay though as a matter of fact that there's 11. the only one that is not specifically mentioned after the dispersion of the northern tribes is the tribe of reuben they're not mentioned anymore in scripture but all of the others are even in the new testament we know that simeon and judah were not lost why because simeon was incorporated in the land of judah okay so simeon and judah are not lost we know that the levites were not lost because they were incorporated through all of the tribes of israel that's three tribes right there okay and then after that paul is of the tribe of benjamin okay so that's four tribes and then we know that uh anna the daughter of Phanuel, was of the tribe of asher that's the lady that was 84 years old that saw christ there okay so you have asher and then even in the old testament you've got all kinds of other tribes that are mentioned along with them after the 12 tribes were uh, dispersed now that may be uh, an argument from silence to some point but paul specifically says i am here because of the hope of our 12 tribes he says it in the present tense and then peter writes to the 12 tribes of the dispersion Okay? Meaning that all 12 tribes existed. If there is one person of a tribe, that tribe exists. Uh, There's a lesson from that in the book of Judges where uh, the tribe of Benjamin was reduced down to 400 people, 600 people. Okay? It was reduced down to 600 people and they didn't have wives and they were going to be wiped out. But through providence and through, you know, some calculating and some devising, they got wives for those 600 men. But it doesn't matter if there's 50,000 Benjamites or if there's 600 Benjamites or if there's two Benjamites. If there is a male alive in the tribe of Benjamin and he marries a woman, that child will be Benjamin, okay? There are no lost tribes of Israel. So that's just another thing to remember. It came to mind and I like to put those out there when they do come to mind. Okay, he begins with, are they Hebrews? He could have said, are they Jews? But he's taking the cultural designation first. And there's a reason why. is because he's going to list a separate tribe later. This points to the special status of those who have crossed over. As I said, Hebrew comes from Eber, which is means to cross over. Same as the word Abar, to cross over, which is what the term Hebrew implies. Thus, they claimed the cultural privilege of being this pure stock. These are the false apostles that came in. Okay, They were probably born and raised in the land of Israel, spoke the Hebrew language, and read the scriptures in that language. In contrast, they would claim that Paul was merely a knockoff of this pure line who mostly used the Greek translation of scriptures and who was born outside of the land of Israel. So they could say, yeah, he's a Jew, but he's not really a real real Hebrew. You know, he's born, we're born in the land and we're of the, today they have a term for Hebrews, Jewish people that are born in Israel. Does anybody know that term? It's sabra. And what that means is a cactus fruit because they're prickly. They can handle the, uh, the environment. Yeah. Cactus will grow in any environment. Okay, and so they call themselves Sabra. If they're native Israelites, born in Israel, raised in Israel, they are called Sabra because it it's a fitting description of them. Okay, well, that's what these people might be doing. They might be claiming, "Oh, we're, we're from Israel, and we speak Hebrew, and we go to the synagogue, and we worship in Hebrew." So Paul's just a knockoff of that. He's defending himself right now from that type of thing. However, Paul defended his status as a Hebrew. He was not only a Hebrew, but a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's Philippians 3, verse 5. He was born to Hebrews who were born in the land, okay? He was also trained under Gamaliel and knew the Hebrew scriptures in the original language. Just because he was born in Tarsus in no way affected his pure genealogy. So that one can be tossed right out on its ear. Rather, it gave him something more than they possessed because he could unite the pure doctrine of the Hebrew people with the languages And experiences of the world beyond Israel. Thus, he was more qualified than they were to bring the message to the Gentiles. Everybody, see the logic there? I am from Tarsus of Sicilia. I probably speak a native dialect of Tarsus, okay? Probably. He certainly spoke Latin. He was a uh, uh, Roman citizen, he spoke Greek he wrote in greek he knew it very well he also knew aramaic which was the lingua franca of the land of israel at the time that's what they spoke people will dispute that but it is correct uh that's that and you can tell that from the gospels and you can also tell it from the book of acts they will translate words from aramaic into greek and they'll say in the original the word that is translated some bibles will say from the Hebrew. some will say from the aramaic okay the word means the same thing it's a Semitic language in Greek I think it's Ibrista anyway so it can mean either Hebrew or Greek. when Mark wrote his gospel he wrote everything from a Aramaic perspective as did Luke and as did John John uses the term gabbatha that's a, a, a Aramaic word etc these Golgotha that's Aramaic okay so he's writing these things knowing that the people spoke Aramaic okay? matthew's a little different when he cites jesus on the cross he says eli eli lama sabachthani okay he says that that's actually hebrew okay whereas mark says eloi eloi in other words he's saying it in aramaic and the reason why matthew would have done that in hebrew is what because matthew is written to the Jews he is being presented as the king of Israel and so of course he's going to use Hebrew in his gospel where the rest of them are going to use the the lingua franca of the land at the time so people would have a, a closer understanding to it but they're very similar languages anyway that's kind of a side issue and I don't argue with people anymore about that people wanted to argue in the past and I've just given up on you know if you want to believe it was Hebrew for some reason that's fine and then the Aramaic people will say, well, this is the oldest language. And so, you know, there's these people that want to fight over things like that. It's not worth it. The word, the, the New Testament was written in Greek. I, that's the only thing I will defend. People will say, no, it was actually originally written in Hebrew or it was actually written in Aramaic. It was not. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that the New Testament was actually written in Greek? You can tell it from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. All five of them do the same thing. They say, which is translated as, when they they have a word like talitakumi, that's uh, the Aramaic of little girl, I say arise, right? And then he says, which is translated as, little girl, I say arise. That's part of the original language. That's not a later edition. In other words, the very fact that they say, which is translated as, okay, and it is part of the inspired word of God, means that it was actually written in Greek, because that wouldn't be in there if it was written in Aramaic or Hebrew, okay, or Old English, thank you, yeah, so there you go, it is is one of those things that if you think through what is being said, you will see the logic of how the word is written, okay, so anyway, here we go with that, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was born to the Hebrews in the land, etc., okay, this gave him all of his experiences gave him something more than they possessed because he could unite the pure doctrine of the Hebrews—I know I said this, I'm repeating it—with the languages and experiences of the world beyond Israel. Thus, he was more qualified than they were to bring the message to the Gentiles. In essence, Jesus made no mistake in his selection of Paul as being the apostle to the Gentiles. He was no knockoff, but was rather eminently qualified to be called a Hebrew. Thus, his words— so am i are they hebrews so am i okay he next asks are they israelites they came to the church of corinth boasting in this national status okay so here we've got hebrews that's abraham the first hebrew this is the cultural designation of the hebrew people they are the ones who have crossed over but now he is further defining israelites why would he do that because abraham had various sons didn't he he had ishmael first he had isaac later and then he had lots of babies through keturah and right the concubines whatever okay and so we need to further refine that and so we know that isaac is the son of promise isaac had a son of promise named jacob who is israel and from israel came not one son of promise But 12 sons of promise actually 14 if you count in his adoption of manasseh and ephraim so you have this group of people known as israel they are separate from all of the other children of abraham and any other children that isaac may have had that the bible doesn't even worry about okay like esau esau is in there for a reason it's to show us types of christ but isaac may have had other children that are not recorded it's irrelevant okay all we are caring about is the sons of israel they are the collective group of people that are brought into the covenant for god's redemptive purposes okay so um israel is comprised of the 12 tribes of people who descended from jacob i don't have this in the commentary but it also is comprised of the two sons of uh joseph benjamin i'm sorry um uh, manasseh and ephraim okay they are sons of joseph he adopted them as his which makes kind of an interesting pattern because you also have 14 apostles you've got the 12 original apostles then you had the lots who were cast and matthias became an apostle and then paul says that he is an apostle as one born out of due time so you have actually 14 apostles even though they're called the 12 apostles so it's interesting stuff that's going on in the bible but we're going to go with just the 12 tribes okay the, it, We'll just go with that for now. They had gone down to Egypt and lived in bondage. They were delivered out of there by God's hand. They were taken to Sinai, where they received the law. And God spoke through his prophets of Israel to the people of Israel. They claim this special status as a point of boasting to those at Corinth. We descend from this great tradition of people who are the recipients, stewards, and interpreters of God's law. So that's a very great distinction, which you're not going to find from Esau or from any of the other uh, Ishmael or any of the other people descended from these otherwise patriarchs, okay? So Paul notes in his defense, so am I. You know, you've got he's a Hebrew and he is also an Israelite. Nothing has changed between him and these other so-called apostles who are false apostles, okay? In Philippians 3, he gives an even greater detail when he says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. He not only says that I'm an Israelite, but I was circumcised on the eighth day. What that means is that he was properly circumcised at the time that was required by the law of Moses. Some people may not have been for whatever reason, okay? During the time of wandering in the wilderness, it says that none of the people were circumcised, right? Until they came up to Canaan and went over the Jordan and into Canaan and Joshua, those people hadn't been circumcised, and so it says uh, that Israel was circumcised again. We'll go really quickly there, just if you don't know what I'm talking about. That'll be coming to a sermon probably not too distant future if the Lord doesn't come first. But in Joshua chapter 4 or 5, here it is 5, it says um, uh, at that time, this is just after going over the Jordan, they are now in the land, It says, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Now, we might cringe at that. Before I go on and read any more of this, we might cringe at that and say, flint knives. They have found that flint knives are actually more precise than the, the finest stainless steel knives that we can make in the world, okay? And they don't carry any infection. The infection doesn't transfer with it. I read a study on it one time that... They can make these flint knives super sharp you know that you break off a piece here and you break off a piece here and it's very sharp and they can make very precise cuts etc so it's actually not something we should be cringing at any more than if you were to use a stainless steel scalpel nowadays Anyway, um, I don't remember where I read that. If you look it up, you might find it the article interesting. Uh, are there any benefits of using flint knives instead of modern stainless and freed up on it? whatever. Okay, so Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of foreskins, which in Hebrew is Gibeat ha Haaralot ha. Anyway, so you got the hill of foreskins. There were so many foreskins of the people that it made a little mound, okay? That's a lot. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out of Egypt had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Verse 6, for the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord said that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. A picture of going across Christ, through Christ, the Jordan River into the land of promise, a picture of going into heaven being reunited with God spiritually and Yes, the Jewish people for the past 2,000 years have been circumcised, but the picture here is, even though it's speaking of physical circumcision for that generation, it's actually picturing the spiritual circumcision of the heart. They have been uncircumcised for 2,000 years, and now they will call on Jesus someday, and they will have the circumcision of the heart. That's being pictured. We'll see that in, like I said, a couple of years when we get to that particular uh, passage. But for right now, um, that's what is being referred to there by Paul circumcised on the eighth day okay of the stock of Israel of the tribe of as my mom noted in Burke's place Benjamin he's from Benjamin and the reason why he would boast about Benjamin is because Benjamin was a very special tribe in the the history of Israel I brought it up a little while ago they had done some bad things Israel came out against them completely to wipe them out and they were wiped out to only 600 people out of 25, 30, 40,000. I don't remember the number, but it was a lot of Benjamites, and they were wiped out completely, including all of the women and children. There were 600 men left, and that was it. And so they had to be repopulated as a people. They were eventually, who came along? Saul, the first king of Israel. So he's got that as a notable thing. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, right? And that
0: then. would have been
1: no, that was after. He yeah, that, that judges it was uh uh earlier and that's why when Saul was selected he says, "Who am I? I'm of the smallest tribe of Israel and I'm of the smallest clan of the tribe. I'm the least of everybody." He says, "Why would you pick me?" Okay? So, it's a point of note there, and then Benjamin also do you remember, Tom, Benjamin did one other thing that was of note. They sided with uh David during the uh, overthrow. They came and uh, you know, Benjamin specifically noted in scripture as having sided with David when there was the rebellion by, uh, what's his name? Uh, Yeah, Absalom. And so there's this special thing about Benjamin. And also, guess what? One more person came from Benjamin who actually saved Israel. Actually, it's the Lord who did, but what? uh, Begins with an M, ends with Ordecai. Anybody? Mordecai, Uh, Mordecai, you got it. That's right. So uh, Mordecai was from the tribe of Benjamin, right? And that means that his uh, cousin was? Hadassah of the tribe of Benjamin. So they're Benjamites, okay? So he's got this really great thing to boast in. That's not recorded here. That's recorded in Philippians, but I'm just showing you that that is in there, okay? Thirdly, Paul questions, are they of the seed of Abraham? The false apostles apostles noted that they could trace their lineage back to Abraham, just as the genealogy found in Matthew does for Christ Jesus. They could then say to those at corinth see we have the same credentials as the messiah as far as our birthright and our heritage oh it sounds really great i'm going to start idolizing these people because they are of this special group of people they speak hebrew and oh my they're so impressive and so i'm going to start following them and i'm going to go off on this wayward path it happens all the time there are many many teachers out there today that are teaching and that are profiting very greatly because they are Jews and a lot of them not all of them a lot of them have very poor theology they make unfounded speculation they write books about things that don't happen and what do they do they go and write another book that isn't going to happen and people buy their books because they are Jewish this happens and it's a very sad place to be it doesn't matter what somebody's heritage is it doesn't matter what somebody's training is if they don't handle the Word of God properly they are not to be followed but we get starstruck and we think this is somebody that must know what he's talking about because he speaks Hebrew or he speaks Greek or blah 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 okay he was trained at uh Reformed Theological Seminary and whatever Sanford Florida or whatever okay it doesn't matter as long as they are treating the Bible properly that is all that matters okay so Paul uh uh has uh said that um they or these people have said we're of the same heritage of them, etc. Abraham is our father. Surely, surely we have the right stuff to properly train you and guide you into all perfect knowledge. In, re, in response, Paul says, so am I. Once again, he says it doesn't matter. They have these qualifications, so do I. Now you have to decide who you are going to listen to, okay? In his boasting, Paul's boasting to those at Corinth, Paul has thus far successfully defended that he is in no way inferior, as he says, to all, at, at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Rather, he meets and exceeds them in these external boastings of the flesh. He has incrementally arranged these points to show that he is a Hebrew, thus meeting the nationality they claim to possess. He was an Israelite, thus being an honored and special relative to God's chosen people who would receive the law and the covenants, and he was of the seed of Abraham, thus entitled to all of the messianic privileges associated with that great father of the faith. Now, before I go on, I got a question for you. Can anybody name the patriarchs? You can name most of them probably. Who are the patriarchs who are listed in the Bible? The term patriarch means first father. Abraham was a patriarch Isaac was a patriarch okay Jacob was a patriarch and then the 12 sons of Israel are are all called patriarchs but there's another person that's called a patriarch David that's right it's surprising in the New Testament it says our patriarch David What? yeah and you wouldn't think that because he's later on down the line but he is a father a first father so there you go with that okay Paul's but Paul's message the gospel message is not one based on these things that we just looked at, Hebrew and Abraham. This It's not based on that at all. It is one based on faith in the finished work of Christ. Go back to Genesis 15, verse 6. What does it say? And Abraham believed God, and he, God, credited to him, Abraham, as righteousness. That's right. That's all that matters, is faith leading to righteousness. It has nothing to do with the fact that Abraham was a Hebrew, okay? He was a Hebrew, but that's not the point, okay? And guess what? It has nothing to do with the fact that he was circumcised. Why? Because circumcision comes in Genesis chapter 17, a long time after Genesis 15. So these things that people boast in have nothing to do with the reality of uh, imputation of righteousness by faith alone, okay? And Abraham's was obviously looking forward to Messiah, and we are looking back on Messiah, but you're saved in the same way. You're either looking forward in faith or you're looking back in faith, but either way, it all comes down to faith in Messiah, okay? So Paul's message is not one based on those things. It is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Corinthians held on to the false apostles Because of the externals, which we do all the time. We do it all the time in our, you know, watching YouTube videos. I've got to watch this person because and there's an external that you are clinging on to. Bad place to be. It is the internal which makes one right with God. Paul needed them to first get beyond the externals by showing them that he was as qualified as they were. Once he can do that, then he can break down the walls and show them where their theology is lacking. Yes, after this, he will have proven that they have no advantage over him in their boasts. They can boast all day long, but they don't have any advantage over Paul. So their word is, you know, just as acceptable or unacceptable as Paul, except for how it relates to the word of God. If it doesn't relate to the word of God, then it is not to be considered. Life application. When you evaluate someone who is a teacher, the last thing you should be looking for is their worldly status. Who cares if someone is a Jew? Who cares if they read Hebrew or Greek? And I'm not trying to dismiss any of these things, okay? But they should not be used as an evaluation of your liking or not liking their theology. Your liking their theology should be based on whether it matches Scripture or not, okay? A person that knows Hebrew or Greek has spent a lot of time, and they are deserving of acknowledgement of that Pete, you could call it, and you know, Will Groban, okay, he's up in St. Pete, but he's a friend of ours that he was ordained at the, I don't think he was ordained at Grace, but he was ordained somewhere else, but he had, he was a preacher at the church that I was ordained at, and he went to Dallas Theological Seminary he learned hebrew and greek the biblical languages and i remember one time he sent out he would send out these emails once in a while the status of things and hear how things are going and what you can pray for he's very good about doing that even to this day but he said one time i think it was in one of those general emails it may have been a personal email to me but i've never forgot it. he says i think i've broken my brain because it, the study was so hard it was so much study he says i think i've broken my and i know the feeling when you 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 study something so much that you think i I can't go on then there's a word in the greek eis is however you want to pronounce it okay it it's a word that can be translated like 15 different ways and the context demands how it is to be translated and he's like I, i remember him writing about this and saying it is so hard to make the decision on how this word should be translated And I think that's when he said, I think I've broken my brain, was over that one particular word. But obviously, all of the studies are so complicated. You're learning something that when you learn a biblical language, Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, you are not learning it like a person in Israel will learn it. They learn it growing up, just like we know English. Very few people know the structure of the English language. Well, that's a preposition, and that points to this. And if you move that, then the sentence is wrong. We don't know that stuff. We just speak the language unless you're trained in English, which you get a little bit of it in grade school and maybe uh, junior high school, you don't care about those things, okay? Perfect example. It'll help you to understand what I'm talking about. And if I've said this before, I hate to repeat myself, but it's an interesting thing is that when I taught at the Korean uh, church, you know, they asked me to uh, teach the uh, children, and then eventually they said, we need somebody to teach these people English because they don't know English. So I'm at the Korean church. They don't know English. And uh, they would come in and I would teach them how to speak English, you know, and here's what you say and here's how you properly pronounce it and blah, blah, blah. But when I would say something, they knew English better than I will ever know English. They knew everything about the structure of English, the, you know, how this verb points to this and this is object, which, and well, that's a contradiction because, and they knew all of it. They could break down the English better than you or I could ever do it. And yet they couldn't speak a word of English. Okay, they just knew the structure. That is what you learn in a biblical languages study. You're not gonna learn how to speak Hebrew or Greek at all. As a matter of fact, I went up to the uh, Greek teacher at the, the uh, college that my daughter went to. It was a Bible college. And she said, oh, this is the Greek teacher. And I said to him, kata lavenete elinika? And he looked at me, he had no idea what I said. It's the most basic question that you can ask in the Greek language. Do you speak Greek?" And he didn't know what I said. And yet he knows perfect Greek. He knows everything about the language, but he can't speak a single word of it. And that's what Will Groban had to learn. It's the structure of the language, how the language works, the mechanics so that he can understand what the Bible is saying. And we don't do that. And so when you speak to a Hebrew person about the Bible, they really have no idea about these mechanics. They just read it like we would read it in English. So there's something to be said for different ways of studying the Bible. Some do it through the Greek and Hebrew. Some do it through pictures and typology, whatever. But there's abundant information to be found in Scripture, and we will never know it all. And when somebody thinks that they know it all or they're in a church that knows it all, it's probably better to leave that church, okay, because they don't know it all. Uh, Okay, so we'll, um, do they speak Hebrew or Greek? Who cares if they have a doctorate degree in theology? None of these things mean a thing if their message isn't in line with the truths which are found in the Bible. Don't follow Pope, preacher, priest, or pastor because of their externals. Instead, follow God's Word and listen to the one who is willing to place that above all else. And then, as I say, every single Bible study and verify. After you get trained by somebody who's teaching you, go verify. I know some people that listen to many, many sermons and Bible studies every week. And I hope that they do that with every single one of them that they listen to. That sounds right, but I'm going to verify it anyway. That's where the sweet spot is. 1123.
0: Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again.
1: Okay, this one here is a little different. It says the same thing, but you'll you'll see the difference. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in death often. So you see it's kind of one of them kind of paraphrases, but they're both very expressive. Okay, verse eleven twenty three. continuing in his comparison of himself to the false apostles, Paul asks, are they ministers of Christ? This is obviously what they had claimed to be. In verse ten seven, a close comparison was made. It says there, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, even so, we are Christ's, all right? So, if they were claiming that they were ministers of Christ, then Paul would reduce himself to their level and boast of his own ministry. In doing so, he speaks. He says, I speak as a fool. The word here for fool is not the same one that he has been using. Instead, he uses the word parafroneo. This is its only use in the New Testament, and it comes from two separate words, para, which is beside, and franeo, which is your mind, beside your mind. You're out of your mind, okay? I'm a fool. Translators vary on how they present the word, but fool should be excluded because of its use in previous verses. Everybody see that? He's used the word fool elsewhere, and now they take a completely different word, and they translate it as fool, and so you don't really see that there's a difference in there. It's probably better that it's either paraphrased or translated with another word okay so um, let's see here where was I instead words like insane out of my mind a madman deranged beside myself in stupidity and so on are used to convey a strong but different intent than fool it's just better if you've got two separate words and in the same passage that you will translate them differently Perfect example, I may have brought this up recently, or it may have been in an email to somebody, but in the uh, Genesis account of Joseph, when Joseph is speaking to Pharaoh, and when his brothers are coming around, and etc., there are two different words which are used for the word grain. One is shever, one is bar. And they're completely different words that are both translated by most translations as grain. And because of that, it's very sad because you don't realize that God is making a picture by using two separate words to say the same thing. Shever comes from a word which means to break. You're breaking open the kernel, whereas bar means purified. Okay, there's a reason why he did that. It's because he was making a typological picture of Christ and of his word etc. And you'd never get that unless you knew that there were two separate words being translated and the translators failed to do that and they say grain and grain and so you just read the account and you don't know that there's anything going on there. But when you understand the word and then you go and look at what the root word comes from, all of a sudden the whole passage opens up and there's Jesus all over that passage it really is astonishing to see go back and watch the uh joseph sermons if you've never seen them There, so are the jacob sermons and the abraham sermons and all of them go back and watch them they're wonderful just it's amazing what god does in his word anyway so um uh, he goes on his use of the words i am more for however you translate that word deranged madman whatever he says i am more it's being used sarcastically to show that the false apostles were in fact really deranged. So he's making a a kind of a jab at them because they are deranged and he's saying I'm more. For Paul, it is in this sarcastically deranged state that he will boast about his ministry. Whatever type of ministers of Christ they are, Paul has exceeded them in labors more often. That's his words there, in labors more often. For the next five verses, he will list his labors in this ministry. And yet, In comparing them to the book of Acts, he only relays a very small portion of what he endured for Christ. You have to go through the book of Acts in order to understand all that Paul was willing to do and what he actually did go through for Jesus. Were he to tell all, the book would be a very large one. Luke is a great chronicler. He's a great detailer. He gives you the points that you need to know. But Paul could have written on and on. Well, you know, that account of us in the uh, prison while we're singing him and Silas there, and, you know, that actually is just kind of a little short uh, paragraph that Luke recorded. But let me tell you about the whole night and the things that happened. And uh, we didn't eat all night or whatever. And, you know, he could go on and on. He could write a book about what he has gone through for Jesus. He says, you know, there is no bathroom in there. He could be as descriptive about the, the, The punishing situation which is found in roman prisons okay and it shows that he is actually being humble by not bringing all of that in here he's just simply making a point and then he goes on to the next point okay in comparing them to the book of acts he only relays a small portion of what he endured were he to tell it all the book would be a large one continuing on he says in stripes above measure he will explain this in verses 24 and 25. The words above measure mean that he, above all the others, had received such punishment. What is implied is that more punishments meant that more evangelism had been accomplished. Most would be reticent to speak after a session with rods or scourges, but Paul became more vocal not less and that's evident in the book of acts as well actually though one time he was about to be scourged by the uh, roman centurion after uh, talking to the people in jerusalem and they took him in and they were going to scourge him and he stopped them and he says is it lawful for you to scourge a roman citizen and there's a reason why he did that when he didn't do it at other times he allowed himself to be beaten with rods by the romans when uh he was uh, you know thrown into the prison with silas that night that i mentioned a minute ago Why would he not want to be beaten with scourges, but it's okay to be beaten with rods? Scourges can kill you. That's absolutely right. It tears into your flesh. It actually mutilates you, and it is a long recovering process. It's not something that you would take lightly. Whereas rods, if they just beat you with rods, it's going to hurt. You're going to have a really bad back, but it's not going to be like scourges. And so uh, that's one thing that he actually did stop them on that. But, you know, what was kind of fun with Paul is when he was beaten, by the people, and then thrown into the prison there. The next day, he let them know that he's a Roman citizen, and boy, they were all the happy to get rid of him after that because they had illegally beaten a Roman citizen, which could have gotten them either the same treatment or even worse, okay? So, he they were very happy that he was willing to just go away. Okay, he also mentions that he was subject to prisons more frequently. At this point in the book of Acts... Only one period of imprisonment was mentioned for Paul, but this doesn't mean that there weren't others. His words testify here that, in fact, he had already had multiple incarcerations. To finish out the verse, he says that he was in deaths often. This means that the work he did brought him close to death or into a position where death could rightfully be expected. In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9, he said, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. If the false apostles had faced any trials at all, none of them compared to Paul's in either type or in severity. He has begun to lay out the trials and pains he was willing to go through as a minister of Christ. Either he was truly insane, or he was willing to endure these trials because of his wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ. Got a life application here for you. How strong is your faith? Would you be willing to endure the type of trials that Paul was in order to share the truth of God's word? If not, it is time for a faith tune up. Who knows when such proofs of allegiance to Christ will be necessary for you? If the Lord doesn't come soon, we may have to face that here. There are people all over the world that have been facing it for 2,000 years. Today, in parts of Africa, people are shot daily for believing in Jesus. In Vietnam, there are people that are Christians that are persecuted for their faith. They're all over the world: South Korea or North North Korea. Just you know, wherever you go, there's "Get Voice of the Martyrs." I got a couple copies of it back there, and maybe some in the back room. Just go online and read "Voice of the Martyrs" and see what people are actually going through right now in the world for their faith. And don't think that you're going to be exempt from that. If our president is not reelected. We have no idea how bad it could get, how quickly it could happen. We have no idea. It could actually devolve so quickly that, yeah, civil war could be coming. We don't know. And if there's a civil war, one of the things may be, hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, blam! You don't know what's coming. So be ready to defend yourself in the spirit of For Jesus Christ. That would be my recommendation because we don't know what is coming. We have no idea. And that reminds me, I meant to do this at the beginning of the class. And so we'll do it at the end of the class. We need to pray for our president. That guy gets, he gets abused by the press every single day. I watch, I skip all the first stuff because it's just, you know, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. And then he has a couple specialists get up and speak and they speak. And then he gets up. And the first thing that happens when he starts asking questions is he gets abused. And he gets abused terribly. It's not just a light abuse. It's accusations. They're hurt. It's unbelievable how bad it is that they abuse him. These these snark. He calls them snarky right to their face. Well, that's a snarky. They they're just. There's no respect for the office. There's no respect for the person. We need to pray for our president. Anyway, eleven twenty-four.
0: Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one.
1: Okay, this is good verse here, and it reads almost identical there, so we'll just go with it. There is quite a bit to consider in these few words. First, the word stripes is not in the original, but it is given for clarity, and its inclusion is correct. So if it says five stripes or whatever, 40 stripes... It's fine. It's not a a, a faulty inclusion by any way, shape, or form. Okay. The law of punishing a Jew. This is Jewish punishment. This has nothing to do with Roman punishment at all. Okay. The law of punishing a Jew by Jewish authorities comes from the law of Moses. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. I'm going to take you there, and I'm going to read you. It's just very quick, and we'll get through that, and then we'll analyze it. Okay. Deuteronomy 27, 26, 25. Here it is if there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. They could say, you're getting two blows for doing this. You're getting 27 blows for doing this or you're going to get 33 blows for doing this. They decided, but... It says here, according to his guilt with a certain number of blows, 40 blows he may give him and no more. That is the maximum penalty for this, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated in your sight. Okay, the number 40 in scripture has a specific meaning, as do all numbers in scripture. Every number is consistently used. 40 is a uh, number which speaks of a period of trial, chastisement. Uh, etc. I'll I'll give it to you on Sunday because we're going to talk about the number 40 on Sunday. But it is very consistently used and it matches perfectly with this as well. Okay, if you ever want to know the numbers, what their meaning are in the Bible, all you need to do is go online. You can read the book online. It's uh, Numbers in Scripture by EW Bollinger. You can get it right over at I think biblebelievers.com. There's a couple links that you can read. You can order it if you want a hard copy of it. It's not expensive and it gives you all of the numbers and what EW Bollinger did is he took all of the the thinking of people in uh, the years before him for 1800 years or so and he compiled it all and he added his own thoughts and it is a marvelous marvelous resource. If you want to know what does 5 mean in the Bible, anybody know grace that's right the number eight the number 10 the number 20 okay he gives you all of them okay and some of them he skips over because it's irrelevant to the story of the bible but the ones he give number 200 anybody know what the number 200 stands for believe it or not insufficiency why would it be well what does he say Uh, 200 denarii wouldn't buy enough food for all of these people it's insufficient what was it that uh, 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 what's his name Absalom used to sell his hair? How much did he sell for every year? Two hundred whatever, okay, or weighed two hundred. Uh, the weight, I think, it was two hundred shekels. It weighed anyway, okay. Well, it was insufficient to save him. All of his good looks had nothing to do with him being able to be saved. Insufficiency. So when you see the number two hundred, you'll know that it has meaning. God put it in there for a reason. Anyway, all numbers have that are in the Bible have a specific meaning or a a, uh, what do you call it, a um, uh, five times eight equals 40. Well, five and eight each have their own n- meaning, and those numbers combine to match what the number 40 means as well. It's very interesting study. E.W. Bollinger uh, numbers in Scripture, okay? So, 40 lashes were the maximum allowed by the law. In order to ensure that this was not violated, thus breaking the command, which was given for punishment of another command, One lash was held back. The Jews said, we will never give anybody 40 lashes because if we do, the guy may have miscounted and then we'll be guilty of violating the law. You know, you're beating somebody and you count 38, 38, 39, and then you hit him again, 40. Now you've hit him 41 times. Oh, that's a mistake. So they said to never violate that, we are going to withhold one lash from that person. Okay, The 40 lashes minus one are mentioned in the writings of Flavius Josephus. It is also believed, and this is something that I've heard said, I cannot confirm it, so please don't make a squiggle in your brain about it. It's just, it's also believed that a scourge of 13 knotted thongs was used, and the person was beaten only three times, equaling 39 lashes. Everybody got it? 13, 13, 13, his punishment is over. Okay, if they wanted to do that whatever that's something that i heard but i cannot confirm but it's kind of interesting anyway it should be noted here though anybody know where i'm going to go with this i did it during a sermon some time ago it was astonishing that uh oh, er- jesus, but he was no because that's a roman scourging so it had nothing to do with people use that and they talk about that oh jesus received uh you know 39 lashes and blah blah, blah. i'm sorry that's not correct because he was scourged by the romans okay had nothing to do with jewish law so they could have beaten him 10 million times just like you saw in the passion of the christ anyway it should be noted here that this punishment of 39 lashes cannot be equated to oh here it is to the 39 books of the old testament and thus a picture of jesus fulfillment of the law which included his stripes recorded in isaiah 53 5. this is a commonly taught thing which neither matches the law of moses which is 40 stripes not 39 Nor was this the punishment which Jesus endured during his passion under Pontius Pilate. That was a Roman, not a Jewish punishment, and there were no such limits in Rome. This is a fanciful but misplaced use of this punishment. However, the number 39 is found in the life of Aaron when he died, okay? If you go back and watch that particular sermon, you'll find out that the number 39 is there, and Aaron represents the law, and there's 39 books of the Old Testament, so that does make a parallel. That's what I was referring to. Anyway, concerning Paul's receiving this Jewish punishment five times, there is no record in the book of Acts that he ever received it. When he was beaten in Acts chapter 16, it was a Roman punishment. It could be that he received these Jewish punishments at the various synagogues that he visited, but there is no record of it. He just simply states it as a a, a factual statement here in Corinthians. This shows that Paul's epistles which very well support the narrative in the book of Acts, were not written based on Acts, as some people claim. People will say, well, Paul just wrote his epistles based on the book of Acts. Can't be, because he adds in things that have nothing to do with the book of Acts. All right, rather, they are independent writings, which unite at times to confirm the truth of the two accounts, which we have seen already and we'll continue to see in his epistles. At other times, they independently highlight other things not written in the other account, Okay. It's like the synoptic Gospels. They support each other, but they also write things that are not included in the other Gospels. And it doesn't matter which way you go with this. There will always be somebody to deny the reliability of Scripture. If the synoptic Gospels said exactly the same thing by three different authors, what would people say? It's all copied and made up. That's right. And if they have any variation at all, they say... They don't match. That's right. It's all false. So it doesn't matter. The naysayers of scripture will always find a reason to naysay scripture. Okay. We have a perfect word of God. We have an absolutely perfect word of God. Life application. Paul was willing to go to great lengths in order to preach the gospel of Christ to his own Jewish brothers. So much so that he confirms that he was beaten by them on five separate occasions. Once again, those are only Jewish beatings. They have nothing to do with the other beatings they received, okay? Are we willing to endure a little bit of pain and rejection by our own people in order to share this same message? Willing to be rejected by family or by friends or whatever? Okay, I was talking to somebody just a day ago about that, wasn't I? Our willingness to suffer for Christ is a sign of our devotion and dedication to him. Can I uh, say what happened yesterday? Or was it two days ago? Today's Thursday. Yeah, can I say what happened yesterday? Well, we baptized our brother here yesterday over at uh, Turtle nice. Beach. Yeah, we had we had to actually uh, violate uh, the uh, county ordinance. We went to a private beach instead of a public beach. You go to the public beach. You know, not only did they... Uh, block off the parking spaces they put up fences all along the beach so you can't even walk to the beach if you live right next door that is criminal I'm telling you what that is absolutely criminal what they have done it is it is insane so I had to take him to a private beach and we went there and it was open just so you know I don't know if that's something somebody left it open but we went there it's a nice place isn't it but other than two old people walking down the beach you could look all the way to both ends of Siesta Key it was like when we were kids there was nobody No, but oh, it's marvelous. It's just beautiful. Beautiful. Anyway, I I hate to, it just takes me back to when I was a kid and it was just, you go out there and I remember one day walking with my mom, we were looking for shark teeth. We'd drive down there after dinner sometimes and we'd also get coquinas, you know, for the neighbor, Mrs. Whatever, for coquina soup. Um, Anyway, um, Miss Service, that's right. Anyway, and uh, one day I remember it was so foggy and mom said, I love this time of year. I love it because of the fog. And I've always remembered that. And when the fog rolls in, I always think of mom telling me that when I was probably this big. Anyway, there you go. little squiggle in your brain for your mom. you uh, go Turtle, it's north of Turtle Beach. Yeah, you know where it is. You know exactly where it is because you used to take your bike illegally through there, didn't you? Yeah, I know you. I got your number, buddy. Yeah, that's where we went. Yeah, so congratulations to our brother, Sean, there. Okay, so... Um, uh, yeah, are we our, our willingness to suffer for Christ is a sign of our devotion and dedication to him? Okay, so we should be willing to do it if necessary and hopefully it won't be necessary But if it is so what you yeah, know what? big deal. I, I mean does it matter in the end if you offend somebody because of Jesus? Absolutely not. He hung on a cross for us He was yeah, an offense to the whole world and the whole world was an offense to him at that time And yet he did it for us. Okay, 1125
0: Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. Have I got the right
1: one? You got one more.
0: Yeah. A night? I spent, the, uh, I spent the night and a day in the open sea.
1: Okay, very good. And that's almost identical here. This one says in the deep, and other than that, it's almost identical. So we'll go with that as well. Um, okay, so this is 1125. I know that this is going to sound stupid, and I've said this in a Bible class before. We referred to this particular verse in another verse, I think, from Romans, and every time I read it, it says, once I was stoned. I, it's just, I, I'm sorry, I can't help it. It just, I, 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 it's, I don't mean to do that, but I, every time I read that verse, it's just, that's me growing up in Sarasota, Florida, and seeing people and whatever. Okay, 1125, Paul continues with this list of the sufferings he faced for the sake of the gospel. He begins with, three times I was beaten with rods. Only one such beating is noted in Acts, which is when he was in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. I've referred to that twice already. The other two beatings are not recorded, okay? These would have really hurt. I don't know if I talk about them here, but uh, I think they're called lictors, if I remember the word right. I'm just going off the top of my head, but anyway, they would have really hurt. Being beaten with a a rod, you know, it's one of those pliable things that bends, and when it hits you, it, it just tears. Oh, Just brutal. Anyway, so um, the other two beatings are not recorded. They may have occurred at any time after his conversion. This type of beating was especially painful, and the account in Acts 16 shows that he needed to have his wounds tended to because of the damage that was inflicted on him. He was literally bleeding out of his back from it, but it was not a scourging. As I said, that's almost infinitely more damaging to the body, and it is life-threatening. This could be if you had a bad heart or something, you could die from this type of a beating. He next notes that he was stoned once. This is recorded as occurring in Lystra in Acts chapter 14. It was the common form of execution among the Jews for blasphemy. In Paul's case, they left him for dead, but he was hardier than they realized. It says that he rose up and went into the city The fact that this claim matches the account in Acts in turn uh, lends credibility to all of his claims, whether they are recorded or not. You see that? He makes a claim here, and it's backed up in the book of Acts. We know that it wasn't copied from Acts, and if he said these other things happened to him, then it obviously lends credibility to the fact that those other things happened. Following this, he lists the suffering of having been shipwrecked three times. Acts only records one shipwreck that he was in, and it comes after the writing of this letter. So he was shipwrecked at least four times, okay? The three he is referring to are here, here, are otherwise unknown. But it does show how dangerous it was to travel by ship during this period of history. Now think of it, you know, we find these galleons and, and Greek ships and all of we find them all the time. Now, we find a lot of our ships, too, because they were blown up during war, but these people just went out on the sea, and it busts a seam, and down it goes, or whatever. It was not a safe way to be traveling, but it's the only way they got around, okay? And so, there it is. Finally, in this verse, he says that a night and a day I have been in the deep. This is generally considered as the result of one of his shipwrecks. The ship was far enough from the land that he spent this time either swimming or holding on to a part of a ship until he was either rescued or until he reached land. The waters around him would then be considered the deep. However, there is another interesting possibility to what he is referring to. Okay, I don't want to be dogmatic about this. I'm just showing you what is possible. One Greek writer notes that the words enbuto, or inbithos, was a place near Lystra where criminals were thrown. The word bythos means the bottom or the deep. If this is so, then it could be a term used for a pit, like the dungeon that Jeremiah was thrown to in Jeremiah 38. So when he says, I spent a night and a day in the deep, it may mean that he was in the pit at this place called bythos. Anyway, we'll take you very quickly to uh, Jeremiah, and we'll show you where that is. Hang on here. Jeremiah 38, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, let's get back here, Lamentations, Jeremiah, so that's just an interesting possibility. I don't want to make any uh, uh, determination on that. The fact that he ties it up with being in shipwrecks probably means it was shipwrecked, but it's still an interesting thing that you can uh, consider in your own head. So, thirty-eight six, Jeremiah 38 says, um, uh, then Zedekiah the king said, look, he is in your hand for the king can do nothing against you. Verse six. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison. And they left Jeremiah, they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon, there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank into the mire. And it goes on, eventually we'll go down to verse 11. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went into the house of the king under the treasury and took from their old clothes and old rags and led them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. This was the reason why they put those uh, old rags on him under the ropes was because he was in the clay. He had sunk down, and they literally had to yank him out of there. They had to pull and pull and slowly get him out of that mud. That's what can be inferred from saying, please take these old rags and put them under your armpits, because if not, it would have torn him apart. He's in the mud. So if you've ever had something stuck in the mud like a car, you know that you're really, really stuck. So there you go with that. Anyway, so that's kind of an interesting thing. In Bythos could be something other than being out in the uh, the deep. But I don't want to make a doctrine out of that. It's just for you to consider. Okay, so um, the word itself isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament, and Acts doesn't refer to this account. So either way, it is only speculation as to what the deep is means okay life application paul continues to show the lengths he was willing to go through for the sake of the gospel how many of us are too tired to get up for church on sunday or too busy to attend a bible study or two during the week now thank goodness we have uh what do you call it uh, streaming online now are we streaming still is it live okay so um we have streaming online and so people can actually stay home and watch and i know that every single person that attends the superior Word Church. watching right now i know that not one of them is missing hi linda i know you're there anyway i'm just saying i'm kidding i have no idea if they're watching or not but i would like to think that if they're not showing up for bible class on thursday night then especially now think of it we we have got nobody on the roads around here you can drive at 115 miles an hour down the road you could be from manatee county yeah one time yeah you could be from manatee county down to here in about four minutes instead of a 45 minute drive right So there's no excuse for people to not be here. But I'm going to let them go. As long as they're watching online, we're going to let them go. Anyway, I'm I'm making a joke. Uh, Paul continues to show the lengths he was willing to go. How many of us are too tired to get up for church on Sunday or to attend Thursday night Bible study? Okay. How much time do we spend reading the Bible each day? I want each of you to ask yourself that. I'm not talking to just you. I'm talking to the people online or anybody that listens to this video in the future. How much time are you willing to read the Bible each day? I was talking to Jim about that before class. We were talking about it and, and uh, you know, are we reading? Or are we not reading? And I said, I force myself, absolutely force myself to do nothing else until I've read the Bible in the morning. I don't care. Now, it's not true because I get out and I have to walk two dogs, which will pee on the floor if I don't. So I take them out immediately while the coffee is brewing, and then I bring them in and I sit down and I read two things out of the Bible, and then I go get my coffee and then I go back and I sit down and I, I read the Bible, Okay. I force myself to do that because if I don't, it is so easy to get out of a habit. And once you're out of a habit, it just is gone. So, and I'm not saying that I'm forcing myself because I don't want to do it. I just force myself to do it. The same routine is what I'm talking about. Not the joy or lack of joy. I'm talking about the same routine. And then before I go to bed, I force myself to read the Bible. That same routine before I go to bed every day and during the day fortunately because this is my job I get to be in the Bible all day long and people email me a question or something but you don't have that and so you actually have to force yourself or you are not going to be reading the Bible at all and this is your only connection to know God you cannot know God and I'm talking about the God of this universe it is impossible outside of his general revelation He's revealed himself in the flowers and in the birds and in the stars and how things work. He's revealed us himself to us in that way. But apart from that general revelation, you cannot know God. It is impossible to know God without knowing Jesus Christ. That is a given. I hope all of you understand that you cannot know God without knowing Jesus Christ. And it is impossible to know Jesus Christ unless you know his word, which tells of him. Everybody see the logic can't know God without Jesus can't know Jesus without the Bible because there's nothing else about Jesus anywhere Okay, there's a couple references to him by Josephus and some other ancient writers Which are a sentence here and a sentence there, but they would give you no more information than I saw a guy with a bandana and a beard walking down the road and reading it in a letter uh, 150 years ago, it doesn't make any difference who that guy is. He's nobody. Okay, but what I'm saying is That would be all we have without the Bible. So please read your Bible, okay? How much time do we spend reading the Bible each day? This book came to us through much suffering and at great risk to those who penned it under the inspiration of the Spirit. We saw the suffering of Jeremiah. We saw the suffering of Paul. And we certainly know of the suffering of Jesus because of these writers who told us of these things. So there is a lot of suffering that went into the compilation the writing and compilation of this book and the protection not just getting us this book but the protection of this word throughout the ages since then so that we would have the word of God people have died for the word of God people were burned because they translated the word of God people have a Bible and it's found in their house and they're taken out and shot in the head because of this book we need to put our priorities straight and If people are willing to do that, aren't you at least willing to pick it up and read it for 30 or 40 minutes a day? Is that too much for God to ask of you to get to know His Son and what He has done for you? Okay, 1126, and I think, yeah, we'll be done after that.
0: Okay. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own country, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from the false
1: brothers. Okay, that's a lot of dangers. I'm going to read this one because he writes it differently. In journeys often, in perils of waters instead of rivers, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles. So he's getting it from both ends. In perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among the false brethren. It says the same thing, but it's just, they're both wonderfully written. Okay, Paul's list of his many trials for the sake of the gospel continues to grow in this verse. I hope we can finish this verse. Um, oh, it's a long yeah, he says, in journeys often. This would be the trials of his many journeys, particularly the chance of getting waylaid on the trip. Such as happened to the man in the parable of the good Samaritan in Luke ten twenty five through thirty seven. I'm not going to read it to save time. Okay, but go. It's funny. I read that today. That was my morning. I'm sorry. That was. Uh, hang on. Uh, no, that was my evening reading yesterday. No, I'm sorry. It was my morning reading today. Luke ten twenty five through thirty seven. It was this morning. I always get my uh, Bible reading mixed up because I'm. I'm up as soon as I go to bed. So anyway, um, and the funny thing is I was reading that and I was thinking about my trip to from Jericho to Jerusalem. So there you go. Luke 25 through 37. Go read it. Wonderful account. It would have also included the other many hardships associated with traveling by foot or on an animal. Okay. Continuing on, he says in perils of waters. The word for waters is potamas. It means specifically rivers. Thus, it carries the idea of a current, brook, or stream as drinkable. You can get a hint of our modern word potable from this then. Okay, everybody see that? Potamas and potable. Okay, these inland rivers and streams needed to be forded in one way or another if no bridge was available. It was at times hazardous, but Paul continued on, passing over them for the sake of Christ. His next words... Imperils of my own countrymen literally permeate the book of acts. Everywhere Paul went, he faced threats of death from them. He faced their anger, and he faced their accusations. And the Jews in Israel today still face that from their own countrymen. If they believe in Jesus, they are persecuted. They are maligned. They're it, it, it's very sad. It is changing, but it's changing very slowly and The same things that happened in the past are happening again. They had a deep-seated enmity towards him because of his teachings on Christ and because of his doing so to the Gentiles, both of which they rejected as ungodly. But this hatred wasn't just confined to his Jewish brothers. Instead, he was also, as he says, in perils of the Gentiles. As it has been throughout Christian history, many Gentiles have rejected the message of Christ. And thus they reject the messengers of Christ. And these many perils were not just isolated to one particular place. He next notes that he faced perils in the city. The residents of cities had animosity towards Paul and his message, just as they do today. City folk lack the intimacy with nature that those outside of the city feel. Thus they cut themselves off in part from God's general revelation of himself through the beauty which surrounds us, in nature. They often become apathetic to the things of God and even hostile to them. That's why every city turns out to be liberal eventually. They don't have any connection with God. There's no contemplating the things of God. They're busy doing things that lead you away from God, and when that happens, you generally turn into a liberal
0: turning
1: against that's exactly right they're not it's It's not ignorance they are overtly turning away but there has to be a reason why that happens and when you congregate people into cities that is the first thing that happens is they start losing the things of God they no longer study the grain and coming out of the ground and say isn't this marvelous we were talking about that yesterday how God reveals himself in these things and you no longer think about it you just walk around and you got a hazy sky above you and you don't see the workings of the stars and you just You get into, but you're right, they overtly turn themselves away. Okay, they cut themselves off in part from God's general revelation of Himself through the beauty which surrounds us in nature. They often become apathetic to the things of God and even hostile to them. This has remained true throughout the ages. Paul faced such apathy and he was in peril because of it. But he also faced perils in the wilderness. In the wilderness were more than just wild animals and harsh living, in the wilderness is often lawlessness. Like the Old West in the United States, where people lived by their own code of morality and judgment, for Paul to present the gospel there would mean many perils from man and from beast. And yet he was willing to go even into the remote places to share this wonderful message. But there was more. He also states that he faced perils in the sea. Some of these have already been noted by him in the preceding verse, but he may be referring to other perils of the sea. Simply witnessing to sailors might bring him into more trouble. Sailors often follow their own gods, which they believe will protect them from other gods who intend to do them harm. We saw that in the book of Jonah. To tell sailors that what they have believed is false would be a good way of getting tossed into the deep or being used as fish bait. Whatever Paul is referring to, he was willing to face it for the exalted name of Jesus. He finishes up this verse with, In perils among false brethren. The word here is suda adelphos. You can see it, pseudo is like false, and then adelphos would be a brotherly love, Philadelphia, right? So pseudo adelphos, it means a false brother or a pretend Christian. It is only used here in Galatians 2, verse 4. This is certainly a jab at the false apostles that he had been speaking about, but it is also inclusive of anyone who could claim to be a Christian in order to benefit from it, even though they had no true love of Christ. You see that in churches a lot. Here, here's my business card. Give me a call sometime. Okay, they're there for business, not for Jesus. The Judaizers of Galatians wanted to rob people away from the faith. Others could profit monetarily off Christ. The list could go on and on as to the reason why some people would claim to be a Christian, but who was really a deceiver. Paul faced up to such people and was in peril because of them life application and we are done just on time too it should be true that every step we take is one devoted to the message of christ if that message is one which upsets the world around us then we may face perils because of it let us search our hearts and determine if we truly are willing to face difficulties for standing on the faith which we have professed if we are you can be sure that you will probably face some type of a trial or trouble or Uh, whatever and you may actually get persecuted by family etc but this is what we can expect and as i said be prepared we can expect more of it if the lord doesn't come soon i'm pretty certain of that i don't want to scare anybody but it just the world is heading in that direction so quickly so let's go ahead and go to lord in prayer heavenly father we thank you for the chance to uh, come into your presence today and to share in your word now what a wonderful word it is there's mysteries that we can't even be sure about such as uh in the deep just a couple of words that Paul uses that may have one of a couple meanings and uh, it helps us to stretch our minds a little bit and to think on things and that's a wonderful thing that you've given us to uh, to do, Lord. We thank you for that. And Lord, we certainly lift up all of the people that we mentioned at the beginning of this uh, class today and of the needs that are out there and uh, anybody that's stuck in any type of bondage which is unhealthy for their walk with you, that they would have their eyes open to be willing to say, I could be wrong in this. And by doing so, lead them to a right understanding of what or whatever it is that's hindering them and finally lord we do lift up our wonderful president he's a man who is just hemmed in by enemies and i do believe personally that he's trying his best for this nation and uh he's he's made good choices for christians for the sanctity of life and for uh people of faith that want to call on you and he's appointed people that do call on you in spirit and in truth and so we would lift him up and just uh, ask that you would continue to sustain him, support him, and give him wisdom and many wise counselors. And, Lord, we pray these things so that you will be glorified, and we do so in the beautiful and exalted name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's go ahead and, oh, let's get these uh, people to say goodbye. Oh, okay.